Amen. Good morning. Everybody doing okay? Some of you guys just lied in church and you should feel ashamed of yourself. <laughs> We're in Colossians chapter 3. We are on the, the back side of Colossians going downhill now. And the momentum is picking up. So, Father, we love your word. Lord, we thank you for the freedom and the time to gather in your presence. Lord, I confess this morning an unworthiness. Lord, we confess that there's not an individual in this room that has earned your favor. But we are totally dependent on the blood of Jesus that was shed for us on the cross of Calvary. And as we start a new year, Lord, we just first say thank you for the crucifixion of your most holy son. May all of our lives be poured out as offerings of thanksgiving for that great act. And church, if you would, just tell them, just say, I love you, Jesus. I love you this morning, Jesus. You're so good. Thank you for your presence in this room this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Somebody say, amen. Well, in 1873, 1873, Pastor Brad was born in 1870. Um, <laughs> See what I did there? Oh, <laughs> Y'all trying to get me off track already. 1873, a man named uh, Philotheos, he discovered in a monastery uh, in Constantinople a manuscript of a very early Christian document called the Didache. Now, we knew that the Didache existed because other church fathers, like Justin Martyr, for instance, in his writing, which we do have, he quotes the Didache. We knew that the Didache existed at one point, and we knew that it was an influential early Christian document. But it wasn't until 1873 that in the Western world, we finally got our hands on a copy of it. And that was really fascinating because this document is... Um, dated very, very early. The Didache, that, that word means teaching. Sometimes it's referred to as the teaching of the Twelve. And it was used at times as a very early catechism. And so new believers or people who were um, being prepared for baptism, they would be taught the Didache. Now again, we knew all of this from history, but we didn't have a copy of it until the 1870s. Now, what, again, makes the Didache very fascinating is that most scholars date the Didache first century. Some will go as late as the second century, but it could be as early as 20 or 30 years after the death of Christ. And so the Didache could have been in circulation before uh, even the John the Beloved finished pinning Revelation. And the early church was already using it as a catechism. Now, obviously, we don't believe that it carries the same authority as the Scriptures, and it, it doesn't even have um, an author ascribed to it. It's just a really interesting early document that we knew the church was using to help train her disciples in the first century. It opens with uh, a kind of proverbial statement. The first line says, There are two ways of life, one of death and one of life. And there's a great difference between the two. It tells the early believers that they should love God, their creator, with all their hearts. So it's just kind of working to the teaching of Jesus and that they should love their neighbors as their self. It moves to moral instruction. It tells the believers not to steal, not to covet, not to murder. And then it even says this, which is fascinating for us today, but you need to hear. It says, uh, the Didache says, you shall not murder a child by abortion nor kill a child at birth. 
So um, there were means and forms of abortion, even in the first century Greco-Roman world. There was often, there was also a tradition of at birth, sometimes children would be thrown into the river. If a family didn't want the child, they would throw it to the river. And so we know from church history that the earliest believers would wait by the river at night. And when children were thrown into the river, they'd swim their butts out in the cold, save the babies, take them home and raise them as their own. That, that's the testimony of the church. So the earliest documents we have of the early churches saying, as Christians, you are not to participate in any form of, of killing the child before it comes out of the womb. So that is called abortion or any murdering the baby at birth. Rather, you're called to rescue the children that are being thrown away. And so then the Didache it moves into these uh, instruction about communion and baptism. It encourages new believers to fast for a couple days before they're baptized so that their hearts are prepared for the, the beauty and the holiness of what takes. And baptism, and then, this is fascinating for us as well, it, it talks about how we honor and revere true apostles, true prophets, true pastors and teachers, and how we are to reject the false teachers and false prophets. So one line from the Didache, which is really funny um, for us today, it says this, the Didache said, if anyone says in the spirit or prophesies, if anyone prophesies, give me your money. Don't listen to them. All your prosperity teachers just went straight down the toilet with one line of the Didache. You are officially allowed to turn off prosperity gospel preachers from your TV because the Didache just told you that if they prophesy, the Lord says, give me $3,000 and you get $30 million in the future, that they're a liar. Okay, the Didache said that maybe 30 years after Jesus was dead. Okay, they were crucified and raised again, obviously. But he says, but if anyone tells you that you should be giving your money to those who are in need... You probably should hear what they have to say. Let no one reject them is essentially what the Didache says. So if a prophet says, give me your money and God will bless you, the Didache says, walk away from him. But if the prophet calls you to selflessness and says, as the church, we should be giving more to those in need, you should hear what they have to say. What beautiful wisdom in this early Christian document. Now, overall, the effort of the Didache, of the teaching of the Twelve, that the church was passing around to train their new disciples, the overall, the emphasis was on teaching a new believer what it meant to now be a part of this new community. Now, just, like, try to get some context here. First, second century church, there was no such thing as a printing press, right? So, not everybody had copies of the Scripture, the Didache could have been earlier than the, the Gospel of John was written. And so it's not like new believers had ready access to the plethora of scriptures that we are honored to have access to today. Leonard Ravenhill used to condemn the, our modern church all the time and say, you've got more Bibles than you know what to do with, yet you live in sin. The early church, they loved the word, um, but they didn't have access to all that we have access to. And so as a new believer... You're being grafted into a totally counter-cultural community. Now, Judaism was largely founded, or founded is the wrong word. Judaism, in many ways, was an ethnic religion, right? There, Judaism, there, there was an ethnic identity to the religious faith. Of course, there were converts, but... Um, 
so, so Judaism is, is, is unique in that way. There's an ethnic um, glue that holds everything together. In pagan religions, there's this kind of free-for-all thing that happens, and there's, there's not a lot of actual community that's taking place around the polytheistic system because there are hundreds of gods to worship. So it's not as if people are coming together and living their lives totally dedicated to a monotheistic god. So it's this kind of free-for-all. But now there's this glue in the Christian faith. There's something strange happening in this new community. This community, they're not, there's not an ethnic cultural identity. There's not even a socioeconomic common identity, which is really rare. What I mean by that is now we have slaves of all colors worshiping with influential Roman leadership. And, and that's strange we take it for granted because we take church for granted. But I would say that I don't even think we've thought through what's happening when a body of people come together with no common denominator except for the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Now, this early community that's taking place, they're diverse in every way, ethnicity, economic class, um, edu- education, there are some people who are highly educated in the early church. Paul the Apostle was an obvious one. Then you got Peter, right? He's a fisherman. Now, I wouldn't say he was like the scholar of the day. And so we've got this, this broad spectrum of people that are not only coming to a temple to worship every now and again together, but they're living daily life together, breaking bread, sharing their table together, caring for one another's needs they're forming a totally new subculture surrounded upon the person of Jesus Christ. Now, when a new individual becomes grafted into that community, this community is strange to them. They have no context of what's happening. And so the Didache and and other church documents are going to start to build framework around what is this new community supposed to look like, right? Ethnicity is not your common denominator. Socioeconomic class is not your common denominator. You don't have the South, right? You grow up in the South. There are certain cultural dynamics that, that go nicely with Christianity because we're in the Bible Belt. But you, you carry a, a cultural um, error about you. And so we can come together with a common cultural error. And kind of like you respect one another. In the South, you don't honk your horn at me because I pulled out in front of you. Shame on you for honking your horn at me. Shame. Right? We carry a common cultural thing. But again, think of this new early church. There's, there's no... You have Greek. You have Jew. You have different parts of, of, of African individuals, particip- Ethiopians participating in this early Christian community. And so they have to learn and rally around what is the culture of the church? And that question springboards off of the deeper question. What is the culture of heaven? When we pray your kingdom come and your will be done, what do we mean? And I say this all the time and we'll we'll just keep saying it. To pray your kingdom come and then to live like hell is counterproductive. And so the church has to understand who they are 
What is their, what is their call? It, it, it's not, they're no longer in our context. I'm no longer just a Caucasian, Southern, strikingly handsome young man. Okay? That's no longer the most important thing about me. And so think of the early church. You're no longer just a Roman, wealthy, influential leader. That's not the way you interact with the rest of the church. You are now chosen, adopted, bought, a citizen of a higher kingdom, and you must learn the culture of the kingdom that you now belong to. And Christ commands, I know as Westerners we hate to be commanded to do anything, but get over it because Christ is our Lord. You know what that means. He commands, he has laws concerning the culture of his kingdom. And the church needs, this early church needs to learn what that means, what that looks like to live with people of totally different backgrounds, of totally different family histories, generations of different ways of doing life. We rally around Christ. How do we live together? Now, Colossians, as we turn back to Colossians 3, this church is no different. This is a young, diverse, mostly Gentile group of individuals who are now trying to live life together, unified, in a community, in a way that honors Christ. Now, they've got the false teacher coming in, right? The Colossian church, they've been infiltrated by false teachers. So, I don't know if you know this, but you know what happens in communities when there's disagreement? Jerry Springer happens. Okay, drama, right? The Maury was not there to intervene. So, so there's tension. I'm obviously being silly, but I'm, there's tension within the community. There's frustration within the community. There's bitterness within the community. There are a group of Christians who are saying, these teachers are heretics. We need to drive them out. Now, those group of Christians are right, but it's very likely that some of them are, are beginning to operate in what we would call the anger of man, right? And then there's this other group of Christians that are actually living in sin and defending the heretics. They need to repent. Then I've, I would assume there's another group of Christians who are totally apathetic. They need to repent. And so we've got drama in the church. Now, in our day, we've got churches on every corner. If you get mad, just leave. Show them the middle finger and drive on. That's what we do. We call that church split or church hurt. We've got all kind of little terms for that. Um, that would be anti-Christian, okay? And so uh, Paul's going to say to this church now, okay, I've dealt with the theological concerns. So for the first two chapters of Colossians, Paul has just thoroughly beaten down these false teachers with scriptural truth and something called logic. Okay? He has spanked the false teachers, told the church, run them out, don't listen to what they have to say. Now we've got our theology right. The theology is now corrected in the Colossian church. But in chapter 3, we've still got bitterness, frustration, backbiting, tension, and church splits, just running because you're mad, again, is not the right answer. And so Paul's going to begin to dive into, okay, now that you're mad, now that you're frustrated, now that we've solved the theology issue, let's talk about how you're supposed to live with one another. Let's talk practice. Um, and the emphasis of our text today is very much on community. If you'll remember quickly, um, last week when we closed, do you remember the last line of our scripture? We didn't dive too deep into this specific line. was where Paul writes that in Christ there's neither Jew or Greek, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all, 
Christ, meaning Christ is the center of all we do and he is in all. So no longer are there within the church fractions and segments. Do you know what happens when you, when you have a church split and you get mad and bitter? You start to create little pockets. Do you know what I mean by that? And you don't leave with just you. You leave with all your friends and your family, right? You take your pocket with you. So Paul is saying, there are no pockets in the Christian church. There are no, we are the Scythian Christians. There is no such thing as, we are the Greek Christians. Or we are the Jewish Christians, and we're going to rally together as the supreme right ones. Paul says, no, Jesus is all. There's just Christians. And he fills all. And so, in that last line, we start to find Paul talking about Christian community. And he's coming against these fractions and these sections and this bitterness and backbiting. And when we move today into our text, let me read it to you now. We are totally in this concept of theology's worked out. Now we got to talk about how you are supposed to live as a community. Do you guys follow what I'm saying so far? Okay, let me read the text to you and we are going to jump in here. How are we to live together? Colossians 3, verse 12 through 15. That's our passage today. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the peace of Christ have dominion in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to, the Fa- to God the Father through Him. Now, because we haven't been taught to read well, that's really our problem. Um, just looking at letters and forming words, that's not reading. We read context and ideas and lines of logic. We, we like to just jump into the list and go, we are supposed to be humble. We are supposed to be meek. Let me p- preach a sermon about meekness and move on. Um, what we want to do is read well and try to understand the, the full complexity of what Paul is saying here. One, he is addressing a church with division, right? He's addressing a church with division. And then he says, he opens with, you are God's chosen ones. Holy and beloved. As Westerners, we like to read everything with an individual context. We read immediately. I am God's chosen one. Therefore, I should be meek, humility, humble. But the, but the text is talking to the entire community. You corporately are God's elect. Now, many of us, this, this church's theological history as well, come from a Wesleyan context. I grew up in a Methodist church. I'm Wesleyan in my doctrine and theology. Largely, you know, the, 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 what you grow up under, you have to wrestle sometimes with. Um, but as, as Arminians, or those who don't necessarily ascribe to 
a firm view of predestination. Um, we tend to lean away anytime the scripture starts talking about the chosen ones. We would do well to wrestle with that. Um, I'm not, I'm not in my personal theology a hard Calvinist. I'm not a five pointer. Um, although I honor the Reformed tradition, I know I'm talking over to an extent, but hear me. All I'm trying to say is the scripture calls us God's chosen, his elect people. God, from the foundation of creation, determined that he would have a people dedicated unto himself. If you are in Christ, you are a, a, a member of God's choosing from eternity past, and you are now his holy and beloved chosen child. We are the redeemed people of Christ, the people who God has set his violent, aggressive love upon, the people who Christ Jesus bled for, suffered for. When you speak to another individual within the church, um, if, if I'm speaking to Brother Bill in the back, and Brother and Bill and I are having a disagreement, um, I am speaking to a blood-bought member of God's holy people, chosen from eternity past. I don't understand soteriologically or, or how that framework works out perfectly. I'm not trying to have that conversation today. I'm just saying that God's holy and violent love has been set upon Bill forever. And I, and I also am God's chosen one. And so there needs to be a certain reverence an appreciation and honor for God's people, for God's choosing. And I need to honor my adoption. Do you understand what I mean by that? The fact that I am God's son today, not by my own works, obviously. I ain't getting anywhere if you measure in me, put me on a scale. But by God's grace, I am God's son. I need to honor that choosing. I need to live like God's son. And I need to show great honor toward God's other children. And to appreciate and to value God's choosing. So here, before we go anywhere, the first thing Paul says to the church, look, you're backbiting, you're bitter, you're mad at each other. Listen to me. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, as God's particular people, we understand when we say God loves the world, we mean God loves every individual created. God, God loves in one way all. But very firmly, you need to think about this. Scripturally speaking, God loves his church with a different love, a particular love, a violent love. And so we're not just saying uh, God kind of generically loves everybody. We're saying, no, within Christ's church, there are people who are loved with a unique, ferocious, passionate love. And that love and those people are different. You are now bought into a different community. So the first thing Paul does when he begins to address their bitterness is he addresses their chosenness. The fact that they are to rise above to participate in the kingdom of heaven. And so the entire text is not, is, is not individual in nature. Although we need to apply it individualistically, right? Like, I need to be humble. The entire text is saying, 
be humble as you interact with one another. Every, so as we start to work through the list, and we'll, we'll work through the list. He says, therefore, because you are God's chosen ones, put on, that wants you to think of a garment. So put on the garment of Christ. Take off your old clothes and put on the clothes of the kingdom of heaven. People dress a certain way in heaven. You should dress like them. He's obviously referring to inner characteristics, the culture of heaven. But he's saying, put on the culture of heaven and follow his line of thought. Put on compassionate hearts. You can't really express a compassionate heart alone at home watching football. Right? You, put, you, you, you express compassion in relationship with other people. Right? Put on kindness. I'm very, very kind with a bowl of Cheetos in my hand alone. Very kind. But obviously that's not what he's saying. Put on kindness in the context of your community. Humility here. He's not talking about merely an, 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 an inward and secret humility. He's saying as you relate to one another, as you relate to God's chosen one, ones, you need to relate to one another with humility. In other words, if you have pride and arrogance in your heart, put it off. That is not appropriate in the kingdom of Christ. Self-centeredness, thinking too highly of yourself, is totally inappropriate within the context of God's chosen one. Christ is all. That's what the text means earlier. The only person who has the right to hold their head high in the sense of having something to be proud of is Christ Jesus. When your salvation is a gracious gift, you live thankful. When you think you earned something, you live proud. But Paul is saying, you didn't earn anything. This entire forgiveness and life and joy that you now exist in is a gracious gift. Therefore, live humble and thankful. Patience. I'm so patient when I work in this back office alone. But again, the context is patience is an attribute expressed in community. I struggle with patience when my kids are dragging on my pants legs. I struggle with patience when my daughter wants to go fishing with me, but she wants to quit in the first four minutes. That's when I struggle with patience. These traits are not to be expressed in solitude. He's talking about the culture of the church. How the church is going to operate. Be compassionate. So, again, again, grab the context and drop it down on the text. They're fighting about doctrine. Some have embraced false teachers. Others are saying, I told you that man was a hypocrite. I told you that, you know, doing the I told you so. And rightfully so. But there's all kind of tension that's existing now within the church. And Paul's saying... As the holy ones, you need to put on compassion. You need to converse with one another concerning your disagreements with humility. If you are riled up and angry, if you're gossiping, if you're bitter, Paul's saying that's inappropriate. That's, that's not how we operate within our culture. You're honking your horn at me. Does that make sense? Again, in the South, we don't honk our horns. Paul's saying you're honking the horn right now. That's not how our culture operates. You must forgive. Because Christ Jesus forgave us, forgiveness is a standard within the church. Again, a command. You must forgive. Paul's talking to a church with some backbiting folks, some frustrated folks, some people who feel tired, they just want to walk away, 
And Paul is saying, you must forgive. It's not an option. There is a, no, if you're feeling nice today, maybe you could think about forgiving. We do really well just to honor the Lordship of Jesus. Sometimes within the kingdom, it's appropriate just to say, yes, sir. Yeah. I've felt that in my heart so many times. I'm just saying, I don't want to do that. But yes, sir. You must forgive. It's not an option. Then he says, put on love. We need to define what love is again in our culture. But this kind of agape, selfless, totally committed to one another love. Because love, what what does the scripture say love does? It binds together and it creates an atmosphere of perfect harmony. So again, context, right? He is saying to a broken church, a a, a fractured church, he's saying, put on love. It will again bind you together and create perfect harmony. Christ died for the church. He died for a bride. He died for a people who are chosen and forgiven and who will live together in union and celebrate their common position as adopted sons and daughters. He died for a family. And so Christ is not satisfied with a fractured, backbiting, church-splitting, church-hopping, church-gossiping church. He says, love one another, and then everyone will know that you belong to me. And so, so here he says, again, I understand, you, I understand you've been frustrated with one another. Put on love. It binds all together in perfect harmony. You are commanded to be bound together with the church in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to in which indeed you were called. The peace of Christ to which indeed you were. So you were called to the peace of Christ in one body, so in unity. Let the peace of Christ rule. Let the peace of Christ be the standard. Let the peace of Christ establish its perfect dominion. Let the peace of Christ be your authority, your law, your speed limit sign. You follow that line of thought? It's, it's the, the legal standard of the church is the peace of Christ. If you are outside of peace, you get in a speeding ticket. Right? This is, this is how we operate. Let the peace of Christ rule in your, thought, in your, in your hearts. Let peace call the shots. Let peace be the dictator. The body of Christ is to be subdued, right? Conquered by Christ's peace. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. You need to read the scriptures. <laughs> you need to meditate upon Christ's teaching, the whole counsel of the word. Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Abide in me. Abide in my word. What does that mean? It means that you have a responsibility to daily read God's word, chew on God's word, and let God's word saturate your inner man so that when you are offended, when someone comes against you, you respond out of God's word. You are supposed to love God's word. 
You are not, I'm going to get on my pedestal. You're not supposed to love charismatic personalities. You're not supposed to love the trendiest teachers. You're not supposed to love the man just because he's on TV and flies on a jet and looks really savvy. You are supposed to adore God's word. And so when you gather together, and this is a transient community, right? Like in four years, half of you are going to move away and I'm going to cry, okay? Um, When you look for a church, when you gather together and you look for a pastor and elders, you should look for people who love God's word. When someone stands behind a pulpit and a microphone, make sure they've got a Bible in their hands. If a man comes to me without a Bible and saying, I don't trust him a bit. Because the scripture commands that the church must be founded upon God's word. Should love God's word. Dedicate yourself to it so that Christ's teaching would exist richly in you. That means abundantly in you. The individuals that come together in love and in peace and in perfect harmony and they're knit together as God's chosen one. These individuals who are called the ecclesia or the church, they by nature love Christ's word. So Christ's word should have a supreme place within the church. If that word is not the foundation by which the church is built upon, then of course it'll fracture. Of course you'll backbite. If you don't hear Christ say, love your neighbor as you love yourself, and actively let that word dwell richly within you, you don't care if your neighbor ticks you off. Just hit their mailbox with a baseball bat. It'll be awesome. Kick over their trash cans. If you kick my trash can over, we're going to have a real problem, okay? I'm going to hit you with a paintball gun. And then, this is so practical. It's so practical, but just hear it. And then Paul says, sing songs to one another about God's word. Memorize the Psalms and quote them to one another. He's talking about culture here, right? He's talking about like how the house should feel. You should, you should sing songs of thanksgiving. You should lift your voice. All day long, you should sing, thank you, Jesus. One of the... Uh, um, I have a habit of doing that, and um, I don't know if you know this or not, but I'm 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 basically like J Lo, like I have the voice of an angel, um, and <laughs> that's obviously a joke. I do have her hips, though. I don't know if we've talked about that yet. Um, so um, I have a habit of singing to the Lord, just singing, and sometimes on key, sometimes off, whatever. And one of the coolest things for me as a dad has been to hear my daughters sing. And I was working, my mom just bought a new house and I was moving in some things and uh, I was working downstairs sweating and not happy um, because I don't like being hot like that and I came upstairs and um, to put a bed together in one of the bedrooms and um, my daughters were in the closet and they had my phone and they had like worship music on and I opened the closet to see what they were doing and they both had their hands open and they were saying we love you Jesus we bless you Jesus they can't sing oh they can't sing Um, but in those moments, from a dad's heart, I'm going, yes, they're getting it. They're getting it. Um, they're, they're, they're starting to sing to the Lord. They're, they're, they've recognized the culture that I'm trying to intentionally create, right? I'm not perfect at it. And, and they're starting to catch it. They're starting to catch it. And that's what Paul's saying to the whole church here. Is as members of the ecclesia, make sure you're singing God's word. Make sure, even if you can't sing, I've heard some of you sing. It sounds like that guy from American Idol who sang, she bangs, she bangs. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> 2008. Some of you guys sound just like him. Um, it, it, Paul didn't say sing on key. Okay, he just said sing. 
And, and, and so we should have this culture of like lifting one another up with songs, of, of blessing the Lord. And we're so blessed to have Seth lead us in that, just kind of like, bless you, Jesus. You're wonderful, Jesus. Um, Paul says one of, the, one of the key aspects of a real church, okay, a real church, the chosen people, is that they, they love God's word and they sing it to one another and they encourage one another and they just bathe themselves in the word of Christ. This is how we learn to grab hold of the culture of heaven and drag it down in our midst. Whatever you do, do with thankfulness, he says. Again, all of the Christian life, all of the Christian life is gratitude. I used to use this imagery a lot. I just am reminded of it, so I'm going to share it. Um, I used to say that when I was thinking of the gospel, I like to imagine myself as um, like uh, really poor, which whatever, like fin- like a person who's very financially poor, and then you have a great, great, great uncle who you've never met before pass away and leave you like millions of dollars. That's what's happened to us in the gospel. Obviously, Jesus is not a great distant uncle, I don't know, but oh, Christ gave himself for me and as a broken, poor, desperate individual, paycheck to paycheck, I'm working at Burger King, flipping burgers, right? Like that, like I don't have any money. One day I wake up and I've just got tons of, I got everything I need. And I didn't earn it, right? Like it just, this gift just came. But so often what we do is we now live as very, follow the, the imagery here, very wealthy people. And we put on our five-piece suit and we go to business conferences. We try to talk to people about business strategy, what it means to be successful, five steps to being really great like me. But you weren't really great. You were flipping burgers, dude. It's a gift, right? And, and what we do is, as people who have been gifted salvation, we've been gifted eternal life. He's given me holiness and taught me life. We walk around and with our chest poked out like we, like we did it. Like we're, we're incredible businessmen. And we need to remember that we are poor and depraved and hopeless. No ability to get out of the hole that we dug for ourselves. Christ totally gifted this life to us. And from there, when you remember that you were poor and desperate and everything you have was some crazy gift just lavished upon you, all we can do is be thankful. And then thankful, actually, thankfulness, gratitude becomes the gasoline, if you will, of Christianity. And in thankfulness, there's joy. In thankfulness, there's peace. In thankfulness, I recognize that I didn't earn this, and so I don't, it's not like it's all built upon my back. The government rests upon his shoulders. In thankfulness, I, I, just, I, just, I just live satisfied. But for some reason, we, like, we really like to put on pride, pretend like we were professionals at religion. We figured it out. Telling our neighbors, be more like me, and then you'll have something. And God, God is saying, just remember that this is a gift and you're allowed to just live thankful, just sing songs to one another, just love my word. And he closes with, and everything you do, do in the name of Jesus. Everything you do, do under the authority of Jesus, 
everything you do, do in His dominion. Express Him. Love people the way that He loved people. Serve people the way that He served people. Treat people with compassion the way that He treated people with compassion. Jesus is your all. Do everything in His name. So, I'll wrap up quickly. Everything He just said was, to a church, again, whose intention with bitterness and frustration. He says to this church, as God's holy ones, chosen ones, put on humility, meekness, compassion, forgiveness, love, which binds all things together in perfect harmony, and make sure you let Christ's peace rule over you. Let the peace of Christ, which you were bought to, rule in your hearts, have dominion, and make sure that God's word dwells, it lives, it abides in you richly. And do everything in Jesus' name. There's Paul's remedy to a fraction church. Will the church in the future have dispute? Without a doubt. If we all think the same, we're probably not thinking. Right? Like, so, God gave you cognitive faculties and a brain that works and a perspective. You're commanded from Scripture to to read and study and think. You need to think. So we're going to have disagreements. There are going to be moments of rub. That's just natural. What do you do in those moments of rub? If what you do is pack up, gossip and bitter and leave and throw stuff and backbite, you are not acting as God's chosen ones. You are out of line. I am out of line. If that's what you see in me, you grab an elder or come, you, you confront me. I'm out of line. If the peace of Christ is not our authority, is not our rule. Do you understand where we are in Colossians, where Paul's going, what he's talking about? He's talking about how, do, how is the church the church? You're not, what binds us together is not ethnicity, right? Obviously. What binds us together is not socioeconomic class, obviously. What binds us together is not even culture, Southern culture. We don't come to church because that's what Southerners do. We're probably not the church for you if that's why you come. <laughs> what binds us together is, is total surrender to Jesus Christ, our Lord. And he is beautiful in all he does. Wonderful in all his ways. Perfect and kind. Seth, come for us and we'll get ready to close. you want to go ahead and stand to your feet first let's just say if you're here and you've never really surrendered your life to Christ um, you heard me say in the sermon no one earns salvation there's not one person in this room who's a Christian because they're so holy because they live the perfect life That's not the teaching of Christianity. The teaching of Christianity is that salvation or relationship with Christ, heaven, freedom from sin, is a gift that Christ bought for us on the cross of Calvary. So we've all sinned. Every every person in this room has harbored envy in their hearts. Many in this room 
have participated in, in things that they, they would be mortified if you knew about. I'm not standing here as a person who's lived the perfect life. I promise you that. What the scripture says is that if we would come to Christ in repentance and open our hands and just say, be my Lord. Just say, God, I give you all I have. The scripture says that God would gift you forgiveness. You don't earn God's forgiveness. You receive it. The scripture says that God would gift you new life. God would gift you freedom and wholeness. And some of you here have been living a long time trying to earn someone's favor. Maybe you tried to earn your dad's favor your whole life. Like if I work harder, maybe he'll think more highly of me. And God says this morning, that's not who I am. I'm going to ask you to earn anything. Ask you to surrender. Surrender today your life to Christ and he will gift you total favor, total love and acceptance. So the first thing we want to do is the the altars are going to be open. If you've never surrendered your life to Christ, um, there's no better day than today. And you could leave here sure that God loves you radically despite what you did last week, right? Second, I, I just want to say, if there are some here struggling with bitterness, right? We just got out of the holidays. I know some of you guys got into a mad food fight over dinner, right? If you're here and you're struggling with bitterness, maybe being around family stirred up some old wounds, some old hurt, and there's some things that you just need to lay on the altar again. Today, I want to ask you to come to the altar. We want to pray for you. And we're going to ask the spirit of God just to sift your heart again just to remove anything in you that brings him displeasure, anything that looks like envy or unforgiveness or strife. We're going to ask God just to bathe us in his love again. Lastly, if you're sick at all, we want you to come. We want to pray for you and believe God to heal, bring total healing to your body. So Seth will lead us. The altars are open. If you need to give your life to Jesus, come. If you're struggling with any unforgiveness, bitterness, or just strife, come. We want to pray for you. Or sickness, come.